why taking deep breaths is not how to manage anxiety, how to breathe properly through your nose, how to improve your sleep through breathing, how to learn how to hold your breath longer, and why breathing in through your nose and out through your mouth is actually not the most efficient way to breathe, and so much more coming right up. This is episode number three, six, seven, with international breathing expert and author, Patrick McEwen. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. Is life a little overwhelming right now? Do you feel like you're trying to do so many things, but you can't keep everything under control? If so, that's why I created the Best You Membership, to help go-getters like yourself move from overwhelmed to organized and in control of their life. If you want to learn how to keep all six areas of your life, which are health, personal, career, financial, spiritual, and relational, all organized and in a constant state of growth, then go to nickcarrier.com slash membership. Again, nickcarrier.com slash membership. Today, you're going to learn all about the one body function that can influence all other body functions, which is breathing. Patrick McEwen, who joins me all the way from Dublin, Ireland, is an international breathing expert and author based in Dublin, Ireland. Since 2002, he has worked with thousands of clients, including elite military special forces and Olympic coaches and athletes. His first book he wrote back in 2016 is called The Oxygen Advantage, and more recently, he has authored Atomic Focus and The Breathing Cure. One phrase he talks a lot about during this interview is the BOLT test, B-O-L-T, and that stands for Body Oxygen Level Test, which is a test where you can essentially see how long you can hold your breath for, and he talks about the importance of that test and how it can relate to your anxiety levels and how it relates to your physical fitness. Before diving in, be sure you're subscribing to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast on the Apple Podcast app, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and be sure you share this episode with a friend or family member while you're listening. All you have to do is send them to nickcarrier.com slash podcast. And if you enjoy the show, then I would obviously love it if you leave a five-star rating and review. But without further ado, here's to getting closer and closer to your best you with the one and only Patrick McEwen. All right. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. Today, I am super excited to be joined by the one and only Patrick McEwen. Patrick, I just want to start off by saying thanks so much for spending the time with me today. Yeah, of course, Nick. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Very good. Well, I just uh, finished actually listening to on Audible, The Oxygen Advantage, and it's an awesome book. I haven't had the chance to get into the breathing cure yet, but I know I'm going to uh, get that next. So I'm excited to talk a little bit uh, about both and maybe a little bit about atomic focus as well. But essentially the whole idea is to help people to optimize both their mental health and physical health and their productivity and focus um, through our conversation today. And so kind of the way I want to start off is, as I just mentioned, your most recent book is called The Breathing Cure. So just in a couple of minutes, because I feel like a lot of people are like, The Breathing Cure, like what? Uh, to orient a everybody else like why does our or why does our breathing need curing for just a couple minutes yeah you know nick i think breathing has had a very bad rap over the years um people when you talk about breathing their eyes glaze over they usually think it's a load of nonsense and they they're basing that on the information that has been often put out there and put out there over the last few decades breathing has been untapped and I will genuinely say it, that most people who were teaching breathing and instructing people in breathing exercises didn't fully understand the breath. I'm not going to say I understand it fully either. 
But what I think or what I would do is in terms of there's such a broader application to this. And I will say breathing is the one function that can influence all of the major functions of medicine and it can influence dentistry as well. You know, if we think of sleep and recovery and we think of mental health, if we think of attention span and focus and concentration, you, you can tap into breathing and it goes way beyond mindfulness. And breathlessness during physical exercise, respiratory muscle strength, being able to delay lactic acid fatigue, breathing to have more improved oxygen transfer from the lungs to the blood and oxygen from the blood to the working muscles, you know, asthma, diabetes, epilepsy, women's health, functional movement, and the list goes on. And I'm not going to say it's a cure-all or anything like that, but it is the one function that when we can influence it, we can change states. And if you think about how breathing has been normally taught to date, the instruction was to take maybe a full deep breath or a full big breath. There was no instruction hardly, if ever, on the biochemistry. You know, we can, we can influence 70,000 miles of blood vessels in the human body by simply changing our breathing. And the idea is not to breathe more, but to breathe less. We can, by breathing in and out through the nose, we, the nose is responsible for about 30 functions in the human body. Of course, the biomechanics play a role. That's breathing with optimal movement of the diaphragm. And also by changing the cadence of our breathing, we can influence, again, autonomic nervous system, you know, stimulating the vagus nerve and helping to bring a balance in the autonomic nervous system. So looking at people with anxiety, PTSD, depression, ADHD, uh, looking at people who are physically unwell, they very often have faulty breathing. And 83% of people with anxiety have dysfunctional breathing. 83%. Now, how many of these individuals are actively encouraged to breathe light, to breathe slow, to breathe low, to breathe nose, to breathe nose during sleep, to improve their sleep quality? And the other thing I'll say, Nick, is that I wrote the book Atomic Focus because it stems back. Oxygen advantage as well and atomic focus stems back to two, one, one main reason. I was giving courses here in Ireland between 2010 and 2013 and 3,000 people attended with anxiety and panic disorder and anxiety was through the roof here. And you know what? I wouldn't say it's far off today with, with all of the stuff that people are, you know, in terms of COVID, you turn on the radio, you turn on TV, you turn on your news feed and, and your mobile phone. People are absolutely inundated. They are absolutely drowning in information on COVID. And what that's going to do is that is going to drive up anxiety. But when I was giving these classes back in 2010, 90% of people who attended were female. Men were not attending. And I, after that, I couldn't help but thinking, why on earth isn't there a breathing technique for performance, physical and mental performance? Because the very same tools that we use to improve physical and mental performance, we use those to improve our concentration and attention span, but also to help bring a stillness and quietness to the mind. Men won't go into a bookstore and come out with a book on anxiety in the main. Men don't typically attend yoga classes. Men won't attend necessarily mindfulness. Of course, some do. I'm just saying that in the main, I'm throwing it out there. But what men will do is they will pick up a book if they think it's going to improve their concentration and attention span. 
So we have to, you know, in terms of the words that we use, and I suppose also give the information out there, the people who are doing breathing exercises, there's some amazing people doing it, you know, military, elite police forces. Um, one of my roles this year was to work with elite snipers. And these guys are highly, highly trained individual. That's the only occupation to do. And when to pull the trigger of a gun. And we could use, we can change states in terms of breathing physiology. And to pull the trigger, there is a time to pull it with much more accuracy by coordinating the pulling of the trigger with your breath. Yeah. So that was, that was awesome. That was a great, great little overview there. So I want to kind of jump right into a little bit of the practicality of it. So, you know, you talk about nasal breathing being one of the most, or being what we need to be doing rather than mouth breathing. Really quickly talk about- Most of the time. Right. Really quick, really quickly just talk about why, I guess just why that is. I know there's a lot of reasons, but- Well, what does your mouth do when it comes to the breath? You know, you don't need to be a genius to look into the mirror and, and open your mouth and ask yourself, what part of the mouth is devoted exclusively to the breath or what, what part of the mouth plays any role in terms of the breath coming into the body. There is no part of the human mouth. We didn't evolve for our mouth to do the, to do breathing. We evolved for our nose to do the breathing, essentially what you're getting at. Totally. Absolutely. But, but yet, if you were to go down to the local gym or I've, what I've done is I remember, you know, when people were doing road races, and I stood on the side of the road for about 20 minutes watching people going by, hoping that in the 20 minutes I'd see at least one person running past with their mouths closed. Didn't happen. So, you know, how many people are sleeping with the mouth open? 50% of the adult population. It's very understood because nobody cares. Nobody cares whether you breathe through your nose or mouth. Physiologists, of course, have overlooked it, even though they're talking about physiology. How can you help with recovery, heart rate variability, sleep disorder, breathing? unless you address nasal breathing. It's really, I'm going to say it's the elephant in the room when it comes to sleep, but it also is the elephant in the room when it comes to mental states. And the other thing about the nose is that your nose is connected with greater recruitment of the diaphragm. And more optimal movement of the diaphragm is very important as well for stabilization for the spine, for posture, for functional movement, for reduced risk of injury. Your diaphragm is also connected with the emotions, the greatest concentration of blood is in the lower lobes of the lungs. And it's known since 1988 that when you breathe exclusively through your nose, that the pressure of oxygen blood increases by 10%, 10%. And if you do physical exercise with your mouth closed, carbon dioxide increases in the blood because it's going to build up because the nose is a smaller exit for carbon dioxide from the body than the mouth. And as a result, you're going to have higher carbon dioxide when you do physical exercise with the mouth closed. However, increased carbon dioxide assists with oxygen being released from the red blood cells to the working muscles. Say that, say that one more time. Say that one more time for everybody, the role of carbon dioxide. Like since 1904, it's been recognized that carbon dioxide plays a role. And that role is that it is the key to unlock oxygen from the red blood cells to the working muscles. So basically, when there's an increase of carbon dioxide in the blood, blood pH drops and hemoglobin, which is the main carrier of oxygen in the blood releases oxygen more readily to the working muscles. So it's kind of ironic because I remember 20 years ago when I came 20 plus years ago. Now I came across this, I always had cold hands and cold feet 
And like I went into exams, Nick, stressed out because I was chronic mouth breather. I was a fast breather. I was an upper chest breather. I was a regular breather. My sleep was lousy. I left school at 14 years of age, never to go back to school again, ever. Now, just as you know, the way life kind of throws you a couple of curved balls here and then. I went back to school one year later. I was very driven. I was working 10 to 12 hours a day studying in order to get my grades. It could have been a lot easier. And if you think that society is demanding that we can concentrate and hold attention, but yet society is not giving children and adults the tools to deal with this. With nasal breathing, and it comes back to this in terms of anybody who's waking up with a dry mouth in the morning, they're not likely to wake up feeling refreshed. But there's also a myth out there that oxygen is good and carbon dioxide is bad, that the more air you breathe, the better. How many times do we hear it? Now, back in the day when I was doing exams, I remember going into an exam hall and just before I was going to go into the exam hall, I took a walk to try and calm down. And I took these full big breaths, filled my lungs full of air. I only did it for about two or three minutes. I thought that the more oxygen I breathed, it would mean that I would get more oxygen and blood flow to the brain. I walked into the exam hall. I was all over the place. I was lightheaded. I couldn't focus. I couldn't concentrate. And I remember trying to get myself together. Now, why is there an idea out there about the more air you breathe, the better? Because it is simply not true. And all anybody has to do is Google bore effect, B-O-H-R, Google the oxygen dissociation curve. And the other question I'm going to put out is this. How many people are instructing their clients in breathing techniques and deliberately instructing them to take full big breaths, as much air into the lungs as possible. And the instructor is telling their clients that this is going to oxygenate their better, their body better. You know, I think the instructor really needs to start breaking down what's happening here in terms of physiology. Now, of course, the question is going to come up, well, what if I do short-term hyperventilation? What if I breathe hard for 20 or 30 breaths and then I do a few breath holds? That's a stressor. But that's not how you should be breathing every day. And to realize that as you breathe hard, yes, it will increase the PO2 in the blood, but it won't increase the saturation of your hemoglobin with oxygen because your hemoglobin is already almost fully saturated with normal breathing. But what the hard breathing does, it gets rid of a lot of carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. And carbon dioxide is not just that waste gas. As you're losing carbon dioxide, your blood vessels are constricting. There's a left shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. And it is a stressor. And it's a stressor to cause adaptations. But there is a point at which a good stress becomes a bad stress. There is a point that stressing the body and mind is not going to be suitable for everybody. And we can't just think about stressing the body and mind. We have to think about recovery. We have to think about sleep. And we have to think... How can we deal with stress, better deal with stress with functional breathing and how to assess functional breathing? You know, I'd say go back to basics. If anybody was to ask me, well, should I be doing hyperventilation or breath holding? I says, yes, go and do it. However, don't do it until you get your, your basics right. And your basics right is breathing in and out through the nose during rest, during sleep and during physical exercise. Get your sleep right. And then to realize 
that your breathing has got three dimensions. You've got a biochemical dimension, which is based on carbon dioxide tolerance. And very simple, simply, I would instruct the person, you know, start really slowing down the speed of the breath coming into your nose. Breathe so softly, almost that you feel hardly any air. And then have a really relaxed and a slow and a gentle breath out. And a very soft, gentle breath coming into your nose. And a really relaxed and a slow and a gentle breath out. And as you do that, breathe less air to the point that you have an air hunger. Air hunger will tell you that carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. And expose your body to that air hunger for a brief period of time, just for two or three minutes. Check this live in the mouth. Has it improved? Check also if you're feeling drowsy. Check the temperature of your hands because you can change your physiology by changing your breathing. And all it takes is about three to four minutes. I would like to see people understanding the breath. And instead of practicing breathing more, why don't you practice breathing less for a few minutes? And ask yourself, can you influence your blood circulation in those few minutes? Now, if you can influence the temperature of your fingers in three or four minutes, you're not just influencing the, the blood vessels in the hands, you're influencing the blood vessels throughout the body, including the blood vessels to the heart and to the brain. And another aspect is that when you have increased watery saliva in the mouth, you know that the body is prepared for the digestion of food, that we have activated the body's relaxation response. So how did it happen? Well, when you breathe really softly in through your nose and slowing down the speed of the breath into the nose and a really relaxed and a slow and a gentle breath out, and again, a very soft, gentle breath in, you're not holding your breath, you're not freezing your breathing. All you're doing is just softening the breath. You're softening the breath to the point that you build up carbon dioxide just a little in the blood because the body is very sensitive to the accumulation of carbon dioxide. The increased carbon dioxide stimulates the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is wandering throughout the human body, innervating the major organs. And 80 to 90% of the nerves from the vagus nerve is from the body up to the brain. So you have this, all of this communication going from the body up to the brain. And it's, it's a tremendous way to be able to change our states by simply realizing that when I breathe light and soft and slow, I can help counter everyday stress. I can help to activate the body's relaxation response. It's very important for conducive, good sleep, et cetera. And there's another, like I use this example. I was listening to a podcast by Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. He's a really well-known UK doctor. And he was, he was interviewing a brain surgeon, Dr. Rahul. And the brain surgeon says, he says, when I get into a tricky situation, the first thing I do is prevent myself from hyperventilating. Now, of course, the brain surgeon knows this, but why doesn't everybody else? Why doesn't the school child know this? Why doesn't the kid in high school and university know it? Why doesn't the corporate worker know it? Why doesn't the family person know it? Why doesn't the first responder know it? They don't. When somebody does hyperventilating, it doesn't allow the blood to supply the brain with the blood that it needs to be able to respond intelligently, I guess? That's one aspect of it, but there's another aspect as well. When we go into a state of hyperventilation, the brain is interpreting that the body is under stress, that there's a trash to the body. So whenever you breathe hard and fast, especially the exhalation, it's not so much the inhalation. You could breathe in fast, but if you have a really slow, relaxed, gentle breath out, the brain will interpret that the body is safe. But if you breathe in fast and breathe out fast, the brain interprets that the body is under trash. 
And when the brain interprets that the body is under threat, all the brain wants to do is to get the body out of the situation. Mm. So you think of the person in the corporate world, they want to be able to focus and they're in a tricky situation and they're responding by hyperventilation. They're supposed to remain composed. It's supposed to be a time for decision-making and planning. And all their brain wants to do is to get them out of the situation because the brain is here to protect the body. Now, what could the corporate person do? Well, focus on your breathing for 90 seconds. Nobody will even know that you're doing it. And you don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to be wearing robes. You don't have to be wearing beads and paraphernalia and all of the nonsense that goes with it. All you have to do is just bring your attention inwards, take a very soft breath in through your nose and a really relaxed and gentle, slow breath out through your nose and a soft breath in through your nose. And when you do that, you're telling the brain that everything is okay. And the brain will send signals of calm to the body. Now that's normal physiology. And that would be a great little tool just that people could bring into their way of life. Because how do we normally react? We get stressed, mouth is open, fast breathing, upper chest breathing. It's not ideal. And some people are teetering on the brink of symptoms all the time. You know, some t- it's not a situation that causes distress. Like you could have one situation and one person will be calm when confronted with that situation. And another person goes off their head. They cannot cope with it. Now, you tell me this. If you have an employee, or I remember giving a job interview back about 10, 15 years ago. Two people I was interviewing in one one day, just at one point, two people turned up. I interviewed the first girl. She was sighing. She was upper chest breathing. She was breathing hard and fast during the interview. What did she tell me? She told me that she wasn't comfortable. She told me that she was stressed during the interview. Did I choose her? No, it's not just about how you are feeling internally, but it's also, sorry, now I'm just after having two dogs come in, a wife and a child come in, which is all good. <laughs> so I told you I had to change locations because I'd, my internet was faulty in the office. So apologies. Yeah. Yeah. So you can edit this out or you can leave it in, but uh, yeah, that's the way it goes. So here is me watching, watching all the commotion here. And focusing on my own breathing and say, well, I have to stay calm now in this situation as well. There's a simple example, you know, it's never far from home. No, but I think what you were, what you were touching on is really key. You know, it's not just the benefit of making you feel calm. It's also the, you know, the vibe or oh, totally the, the feeling that you're giving to other people. Like if, if, if somebody else is sensing that you're uncomfortable, then it's sensing that you are maybe not all that confident in yourself or not all that confident in what you know. And so you might not have as favorable an opinion of that person. Well, it's like this, you know, are you going to choose them to handle a difficult situation? Yeah, exactly. It's not that they're not comfortable. I think, you know, we as human beings, we need to be able to maintain composure in a difficult situation. This is the measure of a leader. Like the measure of a leader is not how well they do when everything is going fine. A company runs itself when everything is going well and the markets are up and there's demand for the product and everything is grand, the company runs itself. A country will run itself when everything is going fine. You don't need, politicians don't really have so much of an influence. But the measure of a leader is how well they perform when things are going poorly. 
you know, a pilot, a pilot doesn't necessarily have to do much in- intervention flying a plane because very often it's autopilot, etc. But the pilot is there that if there's a tricky situation that the pilot is able to step in and that's their training. So how can you remain calm in the face of difficulty? And this is when you're able to control your states and highly trained individuals will have this. Now, some people have it naturally. Others like myself, I had to develop it over time. But it does come back to the breath. And, and let's talk about that because one of the things that you talk about in the oxygen advantage is the distinction between the deep breath and like kind of the softer breath that you're talking about because a lot of us are taught or we say to others or we hear from others, take a deep breath. And you know, you talk a little about in the oxygen advantage why like deep actually isn't really the right the right word to be using or the right thing to be to be going after. So why is it more important not to take what we think of as a deep breath and why it's more important to, you know, what you've just recently said as inhale softly and exhale softly repeatedly? Like Why is that the thing that keeps you calm and not actually taking deep breaths? We'll be back to the interview in just a second. But first, I wanted to share a quick testimonial from a past participant of the 10-week transformation program. I started running the 10WT in the beginning of 2020 and I've had over 150 people on counting go through it and they've seen amazing results both inside and out. If you're inspired to join after listening to the testimonial, then go to nickcarrier.com to learn more. We'll get back to the episode in just a minute, but first, here's what they had to say. Hi, I'm Marissa and I joined Nick's 10-week program um, to train for my half marathon. From week to week, I've just seen myself get stronger and um, runs get easier. Doing it with like a group has been fun. This is my first time doing like a workout class like that. Really enjoyed it. You should join next program. Well, deep breath is simply meaning that your your breathing is driven by the diaphragm. You know, you've pets at home. Look at their breathing. You never seen your dog sitting in the corner, hyperventilating for thirty big full breaths and then holding its breath and doing. You know, and I'm not. This isn't a criticism of any breathing technique, but I'm just making a point that nature has equipped us with the tools. And when we think of a deep breath, it simply means lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs. You don't have to take a full breath or a big breath to have a deep breath. Very often people, when they take a deep breath, they take a big breath, but they take a shallow breath. And a big and shallow breath is a fight or flight. Again, you know, and if that person is mouth breathing and upper chest breathing already, and it's, it's pretty common, like Professor Kyle Kiesel, he looked at 51 individuals. He published a study back in 2018. And of the 51 individuals, average age of 27 years of age, only five of them had normal breathing, five out of 51. Now, I'm not going to say that 90% of the population have dysfunctional breathing, no, but that was his study. That was his result. I would think it's probably about 20 to 30%. But it comes back to this, Nick. For people, just have your hands either side of your lower ribs. And as you breathe in, breathe so softly that you feel the lower ribs gently moving out. And as you breathe out, you feel the lower ribs gently moving in. And as you breathe in, you're feeling the lower ribs gently move out. And as you breathe out, you're feeling the lower ribs gently move in. That's a deep breath in the true sense of the word. Now, if you look down at your chest and you take a breath in through the mouth, when you breathe through your mouth, what part of the body is engaged? So look down at your chest and you'll see that mouth breathing is engaging the upper chest. So even in terms of, in terms of the concentration of blood in the lungs, 
The greatest concentration of blood is not at the top. It's not at the apex. The greatest concentration of blood in the human lungs because of gravity is in the lower lobes. So if you breathe through your nose, you tend to take the air into the lower regions of the lungs, but also nasal breathing, you harness the gas nitric oxide. And nitric oxide, it helps to redistribute the blood throughout the lungs. And this is why, or at least this is one of the reasons why the gas exchange improves with nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. Now, if we think then mental health issues, and if we look at, if I look at somebody coming into me with anxiety and panic disorder, what do I typically see? I see a little bit faster breathing. It's not that they're having a panic attack in front of me. All that, all it has to be is that the respiratory rate is a little bit faster and the tidal volume, which is the depth of their breathing, a little bit harder or deeper than what it should be and upper chest breathing. And that breathing pattern is going to keep them stuck in an increased sympathetic drive. Now, can you imagine all of the people with anxiety and panic disorder and PTSD, they've got poor sleep. As I said, between 75 to 83% of them have dysfunctional breathing. Why is it not being addressed? And the other thing that I'm going to say is mindfulness is not going to work for this group of people. Because if your physiology is in that increased sympathetic drive, and if you are having lousy sleep, you know, I would say, what is the foundation in terms of the hierarchy of needs for the human being, the Western modern individual? The foundation is deep sleep. And deep sleep is achieved more likely with nasal breathing than with mouth breathing. And the next tier is functional breathing patterns. And it's looking at breathing from a medical dimension because looking at breathing from a biochemical dimension, we can improve blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. This naturally has a calming effect in the central nervous system, but also to look at breathing from a biomechanical dimension with optimal movement of the diaphragm, that breathing is in through the nose, driven by the diaphragm, but also to change the frequency of breathing. And it's not that I want people to go around throughout the day timing their breathing all day long. No, no, no. It's that they sit a certain amount of time aside. And during that time, they practice breathing exercises and the benefits from that would carry into their normal everyday life. So, you know, research over the last 30 years has shown that the respiratory rate between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute is optimum for helping to stimulate the vagus nerve, for helping to improve the sensitivity of the bar reflex and for helping to bring a balance in the autonomic nervous system. Now, I'll go one step further. We use light and slow breathing as well to build up air hunger, to expose a person with panic disorder and anxiety to that. And we do it to help desensitize the reaction to suffocation. Because very often it's the fear and it's the feeling of suffocation which can drive their panic symptoms. Now, you know, but you could say, well, is this just for anxiety and panic disorder? Absolutely not. Like, if I was asked, what are the biggest, most significant traits that we can influence by changing breathing patterns from a number of dimensions and also using breath holds? And you could use hyperventilation. Like, even though I'm giving out about hyperventilation, I do see a role in it in terms of stress, you know, in terms of stressing the body positively. But what are the most important traits that we can have in our everyday life? One is focus. And focus is narrowing your attention to one thing. And it could be, for example, in a broader sense, and you're targeting 
what are you going to do in your life? What goals do you want to, to achieve? What direction of work do you want to, to, to target? Or it could be in a narrower sense in terms of when you get up during the day, what are you going to hold your attention on? What are you going to focus on for that day? It's very important to be able to focus because otherwise we're all over the place and nothing gets done. The next aspect is concentration. And concentration is your ability to hold your attention on that one thing. And attention span is the length of time that you can hold your attention on that one thing. Now, how many kids are in school and how many people in the corporate world and in the sports world, they can't hold their attention on doing what they are doing. And you could have a kid in school as I was looking at the page of a book. You're, you're looking at the page with your, with your eyes directed towards the page but you're so stuck in your head that your attention isn't on the page. Now, is there anything productive in that? Absolutely not. So, you know, oftentimes people are simply going through the motions. They are going through the motions and they haven't got the capacity to direct their attention to where they want to put it upon. Mindfulness, of course, is wonderful. But as I said, if you have lousy sleep, if you have sleep disorder breathing, Mindfulness and your ability to hold your attention is going to be impacted. But also, if you're in that where your, your autonomic nervous system is tipped into that fight or flight response chronically, you know, increased sympathetic drive, it's going to impact your concentration and attention span. Now we're setting up a recipe for disaster. Number one, the person is in the corporate world. They could be on a decent salary. They're not able to perform because they don't have the concentration and attention span. Their quality of work suffers. You cannot produce a quality of work unless you can direct your attention upon what you're doing. Now, we think about social media. We think about all of the tools and technologies now which are literally training people's brains to be distracted. Information overload People now can hold their attention on something for just a brief few seconds. The issue with this is that when our concentration is going down, our racing mind is becoming more prominent. And with a racing mind, we have increased anxiety and higher stress levels. So whatever way we want to do this, you know, as I said, when I was putting out this originally for anxiety and panic disorder and depression and looking at physiology to help address this, no men wanted to turn up because they told her breathing was a load of shit. And they says, why would they turn up for something like this? Because this is something that's done by people who are totally left the field. Now we look at focus and concentration and physical performance, and it's been embraced. And I'll also say this psychotherapists and psychologists and psychiatrists and medical doctors really need to start looking at breathing practices, that it's not just woo-woo. And there is something in this, you know, because if you have somebody with anxiety going to a psychotherapist and they may be attending their wonderful psychotherapist for five or 10 years, they're doing cognitive behavioral therapy or they're doing counseling or whatever they are doing, it is not going to address the physiology. We have to get to the basics here. We have to look at, does this person have sleep disorder breathing? Do they have insomnia? Do they have obstructive sleep apnea? And when insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea go together, depression is higher, that there is a risk for depression. So, you know, I think that we all are guilty as human beings. We're all stuck in our own little boxes. 
and we do our training and that's it. We don't seem to want to learn anything outside of that again. Well, that's most people. Of course, there is a cohort of people who want to challenge the norms and they want to go and go way beyond what they've learned at university. And we also have to ask this is, who are the teachers in the universities? You know, are these people on the front line or are they, are they having a sheltered life that they're living with their attention solely in a book and they're not necessarily seeing what's going on in the real world because the human body is so complex, it's multidimensional and even breathing is so complex and it's multidimensional. And we cannot just hone in on one area with the exclusion of others. That's my rant over, by the way. No, <laughs> no, I love how I love how passionate you are about it because uh, you know, I I knew that one of the goals that I wanted to have for the podcast was for uh, for upcoming podcasts is to learn just further ways to optimize your your health and your fitness and everything like that because I'm a fitness trainer as well and. I was like, one of the areas that I personally don't have very much knowledge around is breathing. And there's not that much that's necessarily being taught about it. Even as a fitness trainer, like you don't, you don't learn very much about breathing when you're going through your studying. And so it is such an important thing to be, to learn about. And, but Nick, why isn't it? Why isn't it? How many years did you, if you don't mind me asking, how many years did you do education or training as a, as a physical therapist? Why haven't they looked at nasal breathing? You know, if you look at the work of Professor George Dallam, and he's a physiologist, I think he's in Colorado State University. He became interested in this because he was, he's a world-class athlete, triathlete, and he started using it for himself. And then he started coaching others. So only for his, you know, he's a physiology, he's, an, he's a physiologist, he's an athlete. He knows about it, but why, why aren't so many doing it, you know? hundred percent, hundred percent. And I want to get into how this relates to fitness and, and working out as well in regards to what the best practices are while you're working out slash also like when you're doing rest periods of working out. But before I dive into that uh, real quickly, I'm, I've been fascinated when you've been talking about how we evolved to breathe with our, to breathe with our nose, not with our mouth. That's not the main function of the mouth. The mouth is the main function is to eat. But at the same time, you know, that one guy had the study of five of 51 people were actually breathing correctly. And you think maybe only 20 to 30% of people might actually be breathing correctly. So if we did evolve. No, I'll just to repeat that. Say, for example, if 100% of the population, I would say about 20 to 30% of that population of dysfunctional breathing. But in certain pockets, 75 to 80% of the anxiety population, 50% of individuals with lower back pain, and about 30% in the asthma population. So it can depend on population to population. Mm. Now, Kiesel's study really showed a high figure, but that was that five out of the 51 failed all three dimensions of breathing, the biochemical dimension, the biomechanical dimension, and the psychophysiological dimension. And I can't remember then, I think it was 25% of them who failed all three. But even if we kept it, even if it was 20 to 30% of the general population, it's, it's one in four people, you know, so it's, it's quite significant. Well, so I guess either way, the, the, the question remains the same is like, why are so many people led to mouth breathing 
rather than nasal breathing? Why why isn't it just natural for everybody to breathe in and in through the nose and out through the nose? I think there's a number of factors there. You know, if you look at her evolution and look at infants as well, you know, throughout her evolution, and this is over hundreds of thousands of years, infants were breastfed up to the point that they were able to go straight on to adult food. There was no purees. They weren't going down to the local supermarket and everything produced by big, big multinational companies. Tongue ties were, were recognized more. Midwives even, say, for example, in the 1600s, they had an extra long fingernail. I know it sounds quite, quite gross, but they would clip. If, if the string holding the tongue to the floor of the mat was too tight, they'd clip it. The babies and infants were eating hard foods. So they were growing up eating the adults' foods when they got a bit older. And this gave a lot of exercising to the, the muscles of the jaws. And of course, breastfeeding is not just about nutrition. It's also about manipulation of the muscles of the face necessary for craniofacial growth. They were living as well as, I'm going to say less stress, but they had acute stresses, but they didn't have chronic stresses. And if you think about it today, that we are living in a very unnatural environment. We have highly insulated houses, which of course is necessary. But then again, do we have a good air exchange taking place? Processed foods. We have belief that it's good to take big breaths. That's not a great belief either, you know, um, because it can impart that idea that people will be intentionally taking more air. And of course, once you do that, it can become a habit. Trauma and stress, excessive talking, all of these things change your breathing. It's not just about mouth breathing per se. Like I'll give you, like we published a post on Instagram looking at, it was written by, the post was written by a physiologist looking at a, a professional soccer player who died recently of a heart attack. And the professional soccer player asked, sorry, the physiologist asked the question, could this have been caused by mouth breathing? Now, probably would have been more fair to say, was this caused or contributed to by chronic hyperventilation? And he looked at whatever photographs he could find of the professional soccer player. And he was finding that as, as a child, the player had the mouth open. And he put it out there just as a hypothesis. You'll see a chapter anyway in the Oxygen Advantage book. It drew a lot of criticism. And it wasn't that we were making the claims that mouth breathing could cause this, but what we were trying to just highlight, if you are breathing excessively, and if you're breathing hard, it causes a left shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curves. It, causes, it can cause too much carbon dioxide to be removed from the lungs, from the blood through the lungs. This in turn is going to reduce oxygen and blood flow to the heart. And a working heart that's deprived of blood flow and oxygen, like that's pretty much what a heart attack is. And I'm not going to say that this was the cause of, we only put it out there. You know, first aid responders, I'll give you this example. Up until about 2007, first aid responders, when they came across a victim having a cardiac arrest or a cardiac um, event, they used to do mechanical ventilation. But that was all stopped. And the reason being is because overzealous first aid rescue personnel were ventilating the patients too much and actually causing debt. Now, so none of this is new. Back in 1909, there was a, a Yale professor, Yandel Henderson. He got a group of dogs, 
not a nice study, of course, and, you know, I understand it, but I'm just going to put it out there. He ventilated them via a bellows and he made the dogs breathe hard. And by breathing harder and faster, he changed their heart rate. He drove it up to 200 beats per minute. He drove it down to 40 beats per minute. And he's seen the connection between how hard you breathe and your heart rate. Now, coming back to the question then that you ask, is it mouth breathing that's the problem or is it dysfunctional breathing? The problem is it's is dysfunctional breathing. But dysfunctional breathing would include mouth breathing. Dysfunctional breathing includes faster breathing using the upper chest, harder breathing, irregular breathing patterns. And how could you screen for dysfunctional breathing? In Kiesel's study, he used a bolt score. He used a control pause from the Buteco method. So he looked at breathing from a biochemical point of view, a biomechanical point of view, and a psychophysiological point of view. And that's quite complex to assess somebody's breathing from all three. And his conclusion was that you have a simple screening tool to assess for dysfunctional breathing, which is simply the BOLT score. He didn't call it the BOLT score, but it's exactly as described. You have the student sit down for about three or four minutes, just with normal breathing, and take a normal breath in and out through the nose and pinch the nose with the fingers and time it in seconds. How long does it take until you feel the first definite desire to breathe and then to let go to breathe in through your nose and your breathing should be normal when you resume breathing? His conclusion was that if your bolt score is above 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present. Now, let's tie this then with the athlete population. I would guarantee that at least 50% of the athlete population are less than 25 seconds. And that's just my own observations. That's not a study. Um, what is the significance of it? The lower the bolt score, the greater the degree of breathlessness during physical exercise. And physical exercise does not change your breathing unless you swim. It's the only sport because swimming is conducive to better breathing, except in chlorinated pools. When you're swimming, your body is underwater. You're breathing against resistance. It's helping to build up strength of the diaphragm, for example. But also your face is in the water. You breathe less air. It improves your tolerance to carbon dioxide. So anybody who's listening who does physical exercise, if you notice that your breathing is a little bit harder and faster during exercise in comparison to your peers, it's not necessarily your conditioning that is the issue. It could be your breathing. And if you improve your everyday breathing, because it's your everyday breathing that determines how you breathe during physical exercise. Now, who are the people who would experience this more than others? People with asthma, people with childhood asthma, even if they grew out of asthma, people who are prone to chest infections and head colds. Women, their breathing is fundamentally different than that of men, known since 1905 because of the menstrual cycle. And women with the greatest symptoms of PMS have the greatest sensitivity to the gas carbon dioxide. Who else? Anxiety, people with anxiety, people with panic disorder, people with trauma. So there are groups of the population and, you know, you'll have these individuals and no matter how hard and fast that are, no matter how much work they do in terms of physical training, they just feel that something is holding them back and they tend to plateau. Now, here is the question. 
how many people do physical training as a means to help alleviate anxiety? And I would say a lot of people will run as a means to help with their mental health. That category is more likely to have dysfunctional breathing. It's not just enough for a physical trainer to focus on the individual's health and welfare in the gym. We also need to be looking at it. How is the person sleeping? How are they breathing during sleep? And how are they breathing during the day? And I think, you know, it's just looking at the overall perspective. But, you know, I suppose like the oxygen advantage was bringing together breathing from a number of different dimensions. Now, that book now is five years old. And the vast majority of the information would still stand today. Of course, there's been a few extra clinical trials. But in the main, you know, the, the information is still topical and the book still does well, which is, which is great. You know, I'm thankful for that. So one of the things that I've always, I don't even know if I was ever taught it. I just feel like I heard it a lot was, especially when you're exercising, was breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. And so tell me why that is either wrong slash suboptimal. And should I, if I'm running on a treadmill or if I'm weightlifting, should I be, you know, when I, also when lifting, I've been taught, you know, when you're going down, inhale through your nose, when you're going up, exhale through your mouth. So is that wrong? Is that just suboptimal? Tell me a little bit about that before going into the last question. Well, I suppose during physical exercise, we would encourage people to do nose, nose, breathe in through your nose, breathe out through your nose. Now that's going to be influenced by both score. Somebody with a low bolt score, they will find that the air hunger is going to be too strong to maintain nasal breathing. So what I would say to that person is work on improving your functional breathing patterns, improve your bolt score and do your physical exercise with your mouth closed, if at all possible. So for example, you could also get nasal dilators. So if you have a compromised nose like mine, one nostril is smaller than the other. I have a deviated septum. And a, a nasal dilator, simply, it's based on the Cotton maneuver. You can put one finger either side of the nostrils, just gently prise your nostrils apart, and you'll feel that the airway opens up. So a nasal dilator can be helpful for individuals with a compromised nasal airway, but also to improve their bolt score. When you first do physical exercise with your mouth closed, the feeling of air hunger is going to be stronger. And that's because of the increase of carbon dioxide in the blood. But the more you do your physical exercise with your mouth closed, the feeling of air hunger diminishes. And when we look at Dallam's paper, he got 10 recreational athletes. He had them breathe through their nose exclusively for 10 months. And he measured them then at the end of 10 months. They had 22% less ventilation, nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. That would be akin to doing your physical exercise with 22% less breathing. So there is a saving there economically. Breathing is more efficient. And also not just that, even though the people were breathing less air, even though they were breathing 22% less air, the fraction of expired oxygen was less, indicating that the, the uptake or, you know, of oxygen to the working muscles was better. There is a point during physical exercise that you have to open your mouth. So you could do nose, nose. So, but it sounds like people aren't going to be able to necessarily do nose, nose the entire time. Like the first time they try it, they have to maybe go back and forth a little bit to, to improve at it. Exactly. But use it as a training load. 
you know, do your warm up with the mouth closed. Do your recovery with the mouth closed. Do light intensity movement with the mouth closed. And when the intensity gets a little bit too much, switch nose in through the nose and out through the mouth. Out through the mouth allows you to get rid of more carbon dioxide to, to get rid of the feeling of air hunger. So that's the benefit of it, you know. And at least nose in through the nose and out through the mouth is better than mouth mouth because at least if you're breathing in through your nose, it's slowing down the speed of the air coming in. It will allow better gas exchange from the lungs to the blood. There's better recruitment of the diaphragm. And then breathing out through the mouth, you're getting rid of the, the air hunger because you're, you're able to get rid of more carbon dioxide. And then, of course, there's going to be a time that you go mouth-mouth. But I'd still come back to it. Look at everyday breathing patterns. And with a higher both score, and also with a better nasal airway. Like if children were breathing through their nose, it would help ensure better development and normal development of the jaws. Normal development of the jaws would help to ensure a better nasal airway. It's not just about exercise, but it's also about sleep. That's awesome. I'm going to have to start practicing myself doing the uh, doing the nose nose and see how long I'm able to do it and, and sustain it. And I'm go easy, <clears throat> go easy. Start off easy, you know. Like it's not about don't do it to the point that it's excruciating. <laughs> you know that you're it's you almost that you're out. hyperventilating. No, no, because otherwise the nose can get sore anyway. So I'd say go easy and you should be able to maintain fairly comfortable breathing and use your nose as you could use it as, as a limiter to your physical exercise. You know, only use your nose as a means of dictating the intensity of your physical exercise. Yeah, very good. Very good. Well, there's a lot more. Uh, I excited to dive deeper on by um, personally going in and reading uh, even deeper into the the oxygen advantage and go back and taking some more notes and, and trying to implement some of the strategies myself. And I'm looking forward to diving into atomic focus and the breathing cure as well. But I want to make sure I'm respectful of your time. So before I ask the last question, I just want to acknowledge you for doing the doing your research and doing the hard work on this stuff and being so adamant on the importance of it because so many people you know, I guess do probably pass it off as woo-woo and, and and maybe don't realize the importance of it. But I really appreciate your how adamant you are and how persistent you are at, at getting this message across because you know how important it can be for, for so many people. So I just commend your work and, and keep after it, keep getting that message out there. Well, I suppose it's like this, Nick. The people who realize it's not woo-woo are the people who had a problem. Mm. And when they changed their breathing patterns, they got benefit in terms of their sleep, their recovery, and their physical performance. And the people who might pass it off with woo-woo, well, maybe they had pretty good functional breathing, so they didn't experience it. But although they didn't experience it, it doesn't mean that 25 to 30% of the students coming into them could benefit from it. They could. Well said. Well, I know people are going to want to go learn more about it. I know a lot of people who listen to my podcast and uh, are very goal-oriented and fitness-focused people, so they're going to want to go learn more about it. So make sure you guys go follow them on Instagram at Oxygen Advantage. You can also go to OxygenAdvantage.com. And like we've already talked about, he's got Oxygen Advantage book, uh, which he wrote about five years ago, and then more recent books, Atomic Focus and The Breathing Cure. Those are all great resources for you guys to be able to go, go to learn more and learn how to optimize your health, both physically and mentally, and your focus and productivity as well. But 
Last question here, Patrick, is I think that getting closer to the best version of yourself is both a constant journey and a unique journey. I think that the way that I'm going to get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you get closer to the best version of yourself. So for you personally, if there are three things that you could currently do or three things that you could currently work on to get closer to that best version of Patrick McEwen that you could possibly be, then what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? Well, certainly the first one is to give myself more space. And that's something that I'm going to be working on for 2022. I've been very fortunate. I have a job that I love. I have a job that is is very rewarding. And it has been able to provide me with a lovely livelihood over the last 25 years or so. So it's very fortunate. In the last few years, it has built up. It's become extremely busy. We have about a thousand instructors across 50 countries. It has been very demanding on time. So for 2022, I've put in some space. And I think that's very, very important that we make the time to give ourselves, you know, we we create some time for ourselves. The second aspect would be, is just to make sure I started with a more, you know, normal physical routine, physical exercise every day. I don't always get it in every day, but I do my best. And again, it depends on the workload. And that was something that I really focused on this year because it just got a little bit too crazy in 2019. But, you know, so that's something that I want to continue with, with 2022. And if I was to achieve those two things, space for myself and physical exercise. And also the third thing as well is with my young daughter, she plays a game called hurling. So hurling is a real old Irish game. I don't know, probably most of your listeners think it's somebody getting getting sick or thrown up at the side, a sidewalk or something. <laughs> but uh, if you look at it, it's a, it's a game that was developed about 3,000 years ago. It's a game played by sticks. It's the fastest field sport in the world. And she plays that. So I'll be coaching the juniors this time next year. So I've set time aside on Wednesday evenings and Friday evenings. So... Hopefully that goes according to plan. So I suppose, Nick, it's about having a balance, about having a balance between the work and uh, personal. And like, I understand it. Like I'm, I'm a good few years older than you are. And there was a time that I had to work pretty hard to get the name out there. And it does, it doesn't happen overnight. As one fellow said to me, he says, it took you 20 years to be an overnight success. But that 20 years has provided a great foundation. And now, you know, with the next generation of instructors coming up behind me, it's, it's been tremendous. So it's been a wonderful journey. So, so yeah, so it's great to see breathing take off. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, three great things. Very well said. And I just appreciate you getting on here today. Appreciate the work that you're doing. I will uh, work to optimize my breathing so I can uh, optimize my, my performance and, and try to get the message out there to people as well. But that's all we got today, Patrick. Really appreciate this night, man. Good stuff. Thanks very much, Nick. Wow. I've got some things to think about and some things to learn more about. I've always practiced breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. And not that he says that it's necessarily wrong, but he does say that training by breathing in and out through the nose will allow you to retain more carbon dioxide in your blood, which actually will help with blood and oxygen transportation and distribution to the heart and working muscles. So that's something that I'm going to start to slowly maybe implement when I'm exercising. Be sure you go learn more about Patrick and his work by following him on social media at Oxygen Advantage and check out his newest book, The Breathing Cure, at OxygenAdvantage.com. 
Now, I know this episode was pretty technical and some of it probably went way over your head because some of it was hard for me to fully grasp as well, but I hope you got the main points from it. Like practicing gentle breathing rather than deep breathing. Practice nasal breathing rather than mouth breathing. And practicing nasal breathing will always help you to keep more calm during stressful situations. This will allow your brain to not get in fight or flight mode, and it will allow you to seem calm and confident in front of others. And not even just seem calm and confident, but actually be calm and confident in front of others, which is gonna go a long way. Remember, breathing is the one function of the body that can influence all of its other functions, which is why it can be so key in getting closer to the best version of ourselves. So I hope you start to implement some of these practices. I know I'm gonna try to, so I hope you do as well, so that you can continue to get closer and closer to your best. Thank you.